are continuing in the series uh, that we kicked off three Sundays ago as we're studying through the book of Mark this summer. Uh, going through the first eight chapters of the book of Mark. We've entitled the series, The Jesus Way, as we're looking at the life of Jesus. Looking at the life of Jesus and making the, you know, okay, Jesus, based on what I see in your life, how should I live? What should my life look like? And if there was a big so what for the entire series, it was simply this, that spiritual maturity looks like Jesus, okay? All right, and so this morning, we get to hear the, from chapter 2 here uh, from Pastor Micah Mac. Micah shares all over the country and, and a bit all around the world, and uh, that he and his wife, uh, Steph, they are uh, evangelists. They share around. Steph is also on staff here doing uh, worship, and Micah is our staff evangelist that we get to send out, get to be a part of his ministry. So excited to have him share. Can you give it up for Micah this morning? Well, it's an honor to be home for a change, and uh, we were just in Oklahoma this last week, and um, home is here for us. We live in Egan, Minnesota, for those of you who don't know, and uh, we're doing nine weeks in a row, pretty much, of summer camp. Everywhere from Oklahoma to Canada, we'll be on the East Coast. Is there any East Coast people in here? Maybe not, but uh, Didi, there you are. But uh, no, it's an honor to be home, and uh, what's really nice for me is being able to come into a setting in an environment like this and kind of take the hat off and just be a person, just be me and, and have a space to pray. And whenever Pastor Greg, at the end of his messages, will call the prayer workers down, I, I'm like first in line. I'm like, I want to go because I need prayer. I don't know if anybody else out there needs prayer, but... I need a place where I can grow and be fed into, and so I actually want to take a minute and just honor our lead pastors, Pastor Greg and Amber, and thank you for saying yes to the call and being here and making a place where people can encounter Christ and know about his love, and uh, for, me, for me, it's extra special and extra fun because we go way back with the Linz family, and I remember Greg walking into the atrium with this bright, like, you know, looking blonde-haired girl on his side, and I'm like, Greg, who is this? Like, who did you get? And uh, Greg was dating this girl at the time at North Central, and it's been amazing to watch the progression when you follow Jesus and being moved from an intern at Cedar Valley to a worship pastor to an executive pastor and now leading a church here in Burnsville. It's amazing to see the journey that God has you on, and it's fun to be a part of that. Uh, just to update you a little bit on some cool things that God's doing, because I love coming back and sharing stories, and uh, I always want to share stories because it always gives Jesus the credit. It always gives Jesus the glory, and that's why, our, that's why we're even here. That's why we exist is so that God might be glorified, and I was speaking a couple weeks ago, and this 13-year-old boy comes running up to me. He goes, Micah, like first thing, like I just show up in the parking lot. He comes running up to me, Micah, I got to talk to you, and I'm like, I don't recognize you. I don't know this kid. He goes, do you remember when you preached here last summer at our church? And I was like, yes, I remember that. He's like, do you remember praying for my scout leader who was at church? I was like, I'm sorry, buddy. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really know. He said, my scout leader came to church when you preached, and she has cancer, and she's been battling cancer. And I brought her down front so you could pray for her, and we could see healing. Micah, you're not going to believe it. My scout leader's healed of cancer. She has no more cancer. And this boy had been sitting on this, waiting to tell me this, that his scout leader had been freed of cancer. 
And what I love is when young people have the faith on behalf of other people that might not have the faith to step up. And it doesn't matter the age. You could be six years old and believe Jesus can do it. Or you can be 95 and believe on behalf of somebody that Jesus can do it. And it was so exciting to see this young boy so jacked up and excited to share a story about how his scout leader was healed. And then just this last week in Oklahoma, uh, we saw about an additional 100 teenagers uh, give their life to Christ for the first time, which is such a beautiful picture and beautiful scene to see grace meet sin and watch grace always overcome the depths of sin. And uh, one story is I got up on Tuesday night, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, just wait. Like, don't rush into things. Just wait a moment. And I felt like God showed me a picture of a girl with a deaf right ear and then a lower back injury, specifically a tailbone. And uh, when you step out in faith, you never know what's going to happen or what the results will be. But how many of you know when God prompts us, we're not called to be responsible for the outcomes of faith. We're just called to have faith in a really big God. Leave the outcomes up to him and leave the responses up to him. And so um, I just kind of took a step of faith. I told the kids, there's about 1,000 students and leaders there, just said, hey, pray with me for these people. And um, a teenage girl and her youth pastor find me the next day. I'm driving around in a golf cart, and this girl has tears in her eyes, and she goes, Micah, I'm a gymnast. Uh, I love gymnastics, but I haven't been able to do gymnastics ever since I had an accident. I had a really bad accident where I, I messed up my back. I've been in pain every single day with a messed up back from my gymnast injury. And she said, this is the first time I've been without pain for consecutive days. God's healed my back. The youth pastor is there to verify it. And then I get a video on Friday when we get back from camp, and it's a youth pastor with about a 50-year-old woman, and he holds his cell phone up in front of her, and this woman says, uh, I was in a car accident in November, and she said, when you mentioned there was someone with a lower back injury, and she said, and then you got really specific that it was a tailbone, she said, my tailbone has been messed up since November, since the car accident. I don't recall the last time where I haven't had pain. She said, I was out doing activities with the kids. I fell on my tailbone and realized I had no pain whatsoever. She said, I've been pain-free of my tailbone. God healed me of my tailbone injury. So awesome to see what God's going to do. And so I don't know about you, but I share that to build faith. The reason why we share stories around here and testimonies, why? Because we overcome by what Jesus did for us, and we overcome by the stories that God does in us. And when we share those, it activates faith. And so there's a lot of discouraging news out there, but why not share the news that God's doing, right? Why not share the things he's doing inside of humans and how much he loves us? I have a question for you to kind of get things started. Anybody in here ever screw up before? Like you just, you messed up? You made a mistake. Maybe you have children and you looked at the budget and things were getting tight and you looked at your spouse and be like, hey, you think maybe we could cut our own children's hair? Like you think we could save some dollars on the budget and maybe you, you think you'd be good with the scissors? You want to try cut? And maybe you screwed up in a big way. Put up the picture. This is a parent who knows what it's like to screw up a child's haircut, okay? You thought you'd save some dollars, but you just screwed up. You know what I'm saying? Or maybe, um, maybe you're like me. This is a true story. This is really raw, y'all, really very vulnerable. Steph and I were dating, and I gave her just a small little peck, right, just a small little peck, and gave her a little kiss. And after I gave her a kiss, I called her my ex-girlfriend's name. <laughs> like, that is, you don't do that, okay? I, I'm pretty sure, did you slap me? I don't remember what you did. She pushed me back and was like, what'd you say? What'd you say? 
And I'm not going to say the girl's name because I think she lives around here still and just for identity purposes. But talk about screwing up, y'all. You don't say that. I'll get even more real with you. This morning, I had a screw up. My daughter says, can I watch a show? And I said, let's go turn on a show. She was kind of having a fit all morning. I just wanted to put on a show, get ready for church to get here. So I put on a show, put in the DVD, and I hear her crying downstairs. And I'm like, what is her deal? I put on a show for her. She comes up and goes, Daddy, you need to start the show for me. You need to start it. Well, supposedly I didn't start it. And I'm thinking to myself, I started it. I saw it play. So I go downstairs, but I don't go all the way in the room. And I hear the volume on the TV loud enough to hear characters in the Disney movie talking. So I'm like, it started. So I look at her and I go, Everly, it started. Go sit down and watch the show. Well, she keeps crying. She comes back up, throws a fit. I said, Everly, you have two choices. You either get downstairs and you watch the show that I put on for you, or you stay up here and don't whine. What do you want to choose? Thinking to myself, she's obviously going to choose the downstairs route. So... My mom comes over to babysit her kids this morning, and my mom's like, Mike, I don't know how to work the TV. Would you show me? So I'm like, whatever. I go downstairs, and when I go to turn on, the, like, to, you know, make sure the TV's working, I realize the DVD main menu screen was on, but it wasn't actually playing, and my daughter was freaking out because the movie hadn't started, okay? <laughs> so it was on me, and I screwed up. But want to know what one of the most beautiful pictures is? One of the most beautiful pictures, literally, and y'all will be able to resonate with this, maybe some of you, is when you know you screwed up and you know you messed up, but when you encounter a grace that runs deeper than your screw up and it releases you, it frees you. And I don't know about you and where you are in the room and where you walked in today, but for me, I've probably screwed up more than I've actually done the right thing. And when I was at my worst, when I was in my worst moment as a young boy, not having a dad in the home, watching him leave from a different woman, walking through an affair, trying to be the oldest in my house, my house was shaky, walking on shaky grounds. I didn't need somebody criticizing me because I was already in my lowest moment. I need somebody that could carry me. I need a safe place. I needed a place to process in a worst moment. And then God provided a family for me by the name of the Roush family who live in Burnsville. They literally adopted me. I do quotations because they didn't fill out the paperwork. But in their house, I remember sitting down at the table, not having a home to have family meals in because my mom was working two jobs, going to school full time. I, I didn't know what it was like to have a dad lead a family anymore. And being in a family that adopted me, sitting around a table, having a meal, laughing together, it was like in my worst moment, God was providing a solution by his grace by finding me, adopting me, and creating a safe place. In my worst moment, a father put me on my first vacation on a plane to San Antonio. We didn't have any money. I didn't, I didn't have money to go spend on a vacation. This family took me in and created a safe place. And here's the deal. As the church, we are called to do the same exact thing to provide safe places and spaces for people who are at their very worst moments in their life. They need it too. They need a place too to call home. The fatherless need a father, a spiritual father to find their life, to father them, to love them, to care for them, to maybe provide for them every once in a while, maybe open up a bedroom to have them stay in their house. They need those things too. Let me ask you a question. When was your worst moment? 
When was your lowest of lows? When was your bottomless pit? When was your rock bottom? When was your worst of the worst? And now when you think about that, let me ask you another question. What did you need in those moments? What did you need most in those moments of your brokenness, in those moments of things that maybe you didn't choose, but maybe they sort of chose you, in moments where maybe you did choose and you chose the wrong thing and you jacked up your family or you messed up your home? What did you need in your lowest of lows? What happens when the purest grace and love of Jesus meets in the lowest of lows? One of the most beautiful pictures is when grace collides with sin and watch grace overcome sin every single time. Grace takes the pressure off of you. Grace releases the condemnation and the things that spin in your mind off of you. Grace allows you to be free. It allows you to see clearly again. In the worst of the worst and the lows of the lows, where do you go? You can do one of two things as a church in the room today. We can either criticize those or we can carry those, but you can't do both. We can be carriers or we can be criticizers. And one of the things that breaks my heart is when we begin to develop an attitude in the heart of that of criticism. In fact, maybe today you know the whole critic thought because the very first five minutes I got up here and y'all don't know me, you immediately started having assumptions and thoughts of who I was the moment I stepped up in here. Because our default can be to criticize, not carry. It can be to assume the worst about someone rather than assuming the best. And as a church, we have an opportunity to do the Jesus way, to be like the Jesus way. Why in the world are we walking through Mark, going through a series called the Jesus way? The reason why is because we're attempting to build culture on what Jesus did and what he looked like so that it would get ingrained in us, so it would overflow out of us into a world who really needs Jesus. That's why we're doing the Jesus way. Our text today is Mark chapter 2. And it's verses 13 through 17. Now, before I jump into it, I want to give you all a little bit of a context of what's going on. Up until this point, Jesus would have called some disciples. He would have said, leave everything, come follow me. At this point, they would have seen demons casted out. At this point, they would have seen people healed. At this point, they would have started seeing that Jesus wasn't a typical rabbi, but he started preaching with authority and power. He was different than your common synagogue leader and teacher. Jesus was different on the scene. And then in Mark chapter 2, there's some four friends who have a friend who can't walk. He's lame. He's on a mat. They carry his friend into Jesus, but the crowd was surrounding the house. He couldn't get in. So the friends got creative because how many of y'all know when you're desperate, creativity gets to be at an all-time high. They were desperate for a friend, maybe not the friend so much for himself. They cut a hole through the roof. They lower the man down in front of Jesus. And rather than Jesus healing the man like what the friends thought, Jesus looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And the guys who brought the dude in on the mat through the roof must have been thinking the first thing they were going to see was a healing. The first thing that Jesus does isn't a healing. The first thing Jesus does is he demonstrates his authority to forgive sins. So he says, hey, son, you laying on the mat? By the way, all y'all who just lowered this dude through the mat, high five, boom, 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 boom. Y'all faith just messed me up. But son, your sins are forgiven. Know what it was demonstrating? That Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. The house was packed. 
He ends up getting healed, takes his mat, but y'all know what happens next. What happens next is you see Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and then in verses 13 through 17 where we're going today, you see whose sins he came to forgive. You see who he came to forgive. It says in verse 13 in Mark chapter 2, I'm going to read 13 through 17 and we'll get right into it. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. Uh, By the way, this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in three Gospels. And Luke and Matthew make it seem like right after the miracle, Jesus leaves the packed house and in verse 13 goes out by the lake. Why would he do that? Because more room to teach to the crowds, more room to preach to people. By the way, the message Jesus came to preach was repent, be saved. Someone's different here. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus didn't come to do the same religious customs. Jesus came to bring about a new covenant and a new way of leading. And so it says Jesus went out beside the lake, and it said a large crowd came to him, and it says he began to teach them. In verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. It was a command, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Verse 15, when Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors in 17? In verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. If you're taking notes today, your first point is this. Jesus saw you at your worst and still wanted you. He saw you at your worst and he still wanted you. This is powerful. Jesus has crowds among them. There's a lot of people walking with Jesus, leaves a whole house full of people. Now he's walking by the lake. And then in verse 14, like only Jesus can do, it says, as he walked along, he saw Levi, meaning out of a crowd of people that were following him, he's teaching to, he noticed one. He noticed the individual. And Levi, being a tax collector, probably didn't post up right by Capernaum where he was. He probably was out a little bit where there was a walkway where many people traveled because he would collect taxes from people. And Mark 1 earlier, it says Jesus would not stay in the city, but he'd stay in lonely places because he wanted to get away from the crowd. Could it be that this was not the first time Jesus saw Levi, but could it be when Jesus was out in lonely places and spaces, Jesus noticed Levi then? But among the crowd in verse 14, it says, Jesus saw Levi, goes up to him amongst the crowd of people, looks at the guy right in the eye and doesn't give a suggestion. He gives a command and he says, follow me. Here's why this is really powerful. I need to set this up for you. You need to understand what this whole concept of tax collectors meant and the tax system meant. Tax guys was set up by the Roman government. Jews hated Romans. They didn't like them. Jews wanted their own territory. They wanted their own country. Romans were messing up with their territory and their things. And so tax collectors were like this. The Roman government would be like, hey, um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up tax franchises, kind of like Chick-fil-A, where you can buy a franchise, start one, and y'all, life is good, right? 
But the Roman government says, hey, we're going to set up tax franchises. Whoever pays us the most money, whoever bids the highest, y'all get the tax franchise, and here's the deal. You can be the owner of this little tax booth, but we need to get our cut. And they would decide what that cut was. But once we get our cut, y'all can keep however much else comes in. So here's the deal. To be a tax collector was a really lucrative, lucrative business idea. Because here's how it works. Check, 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 check. Perfect, cool. $3,000. Yep, boom. We just hit the Roman government. That's all they need. They get their cut. Now let's go after the people and get ours. Let's go get our cut. And here's how the Roman government had it. They had two kinds of types of tax collectors. They had the first type, which was called a gabi, G-A-B-B-A-I. Here's what they were. These were like legit fixed-rate tax collectors. They would collect tax like your estate tax, your property tax, your income tax. These guys would do like normal business at a fixed rate. The Jewish people, when they'd approach a gabi, would be like, hey, gabi, they call them by name, give them their tax. But then there was a different kind of tax collector called the Mokes tax collector, M-O-K-H-E-S. These tax collectors would find everything and anything to tax you on, tax you on your donkeys, tax you on how many wheels you had passing through, tax you on income tax, export tax. They would find ways to manipulate, control you, and do damage to you. In fact, tax collectors were not allowed inside the synagogues where people would go to gather to meet and teach. They were not allowed to associate with people. It says that a tax collector was that of worse of a murderer. They were classified with murderers. You want to know why? Because how many families on a normal, typical day would walk by and go, oh, great, we, we're going to run into Levi. And last time we ran into Levi, he threatened to abuse my kids. Last time we ran into Levi, he threatened to abuse me. And I guess we just got to give him the money. They would take advantage. They would control. They would manipulate. These tax collectors had no self-worth. And know what we know about this tax collector right here in the story is Levi was a Jew. He wasn't a Roman, which means he grew up just like all the other people that he grew up with. He grew up in a Jewish home, would have studied the Torah, would have maybe been in training for a rabbi. And here's what happened. Jewish people saw tax collectors as traitors. Oh, you're going to do that? You're going to sell your soul to work for the Roman government and abuse us? You're a traitor. You ain't one of us anymore. And tax collectors would care only about themselves, would care only about the money that they get. And the kind of tax collector that Levi was is he was a mocus. And you want to know how they'd run? It was like a mafia. They'd had a, the big dude, the big guy who had a big wealthy house up on top of the hill on the Galilean side to get away from the people. And all these little tax collector booths and these tax collectors would take their earnings and give some to the big mafia head. It was literally like a gang. It was like a mafia. And Levi is sitting there. Do you know what the narrative of Levi's life is? Is how he's not one of them anymore. How he's a traitor. How he's jacked up. How he's messed up. How he's a sinner. Excommunicated from a society in a lonely spot. And the only crew he gets to roll with is a bunch of people like him, which are prostitutes, drunkards, sinners, people who are on the outskirts of society. The narrative of his life has always been shame. Greedy, doesn't give a rip about people, probably's lost all concepts and ideas of humanity. And the very fact that Jesus, it says he saw Levi, this is a powerful statement, because rabbis never, ever, ever asked a tax collector to follow him. You want to know why? Because on the career of a rabbi, it would stain their resume. It looked horrible. Anytime a tax collector would try to follow a rabbi, a rabbi would do all things necessary to get them off their track record and off them from following them. Jesus was scandalous enough. This is how 
crazy an idea this is. Jesus saw Levi in his worst, saw him how he treated people, saw him in his worst dealings, and Jesus pursued Levi and said, follow me. Follow me. That is grace colliding with sin for the very first time. And by the way, do you realize that for a tax collector to leave everything was a way bigger deal than a fisherman leaving everything? Here's why. A fisherman that left everything to follow Jesus, they can go back and fish because there's always fish. A tax collector to leave everything, he ain't getting his tax collecting franchise back. He literally left everything. John 2 says that Jesus knows what's in the heart of every single man, which means this. When Jesus approached the tax collector, he saw a guy so broken that just desperately wanted someone to notice him. He, he never met a love so pure, a love so right. And for Levi to be on a tax collector booth, Levi knew who Jesus was because the word spread everywhere about how he heals people, how he delivers people, how demons are coming out. And for a rabbi to ask a tax collector would never happen. Jesus gets on Levi's level, not Levi getting on his level. He looks him in the eye and says, follow me. Follow me. And Levi leaves everything. Why? Because when you encounter grace for the first time and you receive his grace, nothing else compares to that which you've received in a pure, authentic love that only Jesus can give. Nothing compares to it. Nothing can compete with it. And so here Levi is, this notorious tax collector, leaving his wealth, leaving his money, and he gets up and he goes and follows him. Can you imagine the narrative of the crowd? Whoa! Do you hear what Jesus just said? He just looked at a tax collector and said, follow me. This was the same man who hurt my family a week ago. This is the same man. Can you imagine the murmuring going on? That Jesus would approach a tax collector, look at him and say, follow me. Grace is so much more attractive than criticism. I remember my dad looking at me. And my dad's saying, son, I'm never going to step foot inside a church again. This is how I'm going to live my life. This is who I'm going to be. I'm never going to step foot inside a church again. A year before my dad passed away in the motorcycle accident, my dad looks at me. He goes, son, you want to go to church? I'm like, yes. He goes, all right, well, I'm going to pick the church. My dad brought me and my sisters to church that morning. My dad's in the worst spot of his life. And as we walk into church, my dad wears sunglasses. We get in the church parking lot, my dad starts to begin crying. We get in the service, worship is starting. He's in his seat weeping. My dad has a whole line list of the past. And then the pastor gets up. He says, we were going to start a new series today. But I felt like last night I could not shake what I'm about to preach this morning and what he preached was a list of sins that my dad had committed. It was like the sermon was for my dad. Listen to me. Jesus saw you at your worst and still wanted you. He still wanted you. The father that kind of adopted me and took me into his house, he bought me my first car. I ain't have no money to buy a car. I was 17 years old, bought me a car. Well, the car kind of blew up. And uh, so I bring it back, like, hey, it's smoking like crazy, radiator fried, messed up the engine. And then he bought me a second car. And the second car he buys me, I'm driving home from Normandale College, and I'm, I put a CD in for one second. 
CDs are these little discs. It has a little hole in the middle. You put it in, and it plays music. And so I, I put the CD in. I look up, and a car's right in front of me. I ram this person's car in front of me, and she gets out holding this chihuahua dog. And I'm like, I know you were not that close to me before. Like, that dog must have made you break. Anyway, I wasn't cared so much. Like, she was fine. I was fine. I didn't care so much about like what happened, I cared about having to go home to my adopted father, look him in the eye and said, I crashed the car you bought me. Because what I was used to receiving was backlash and whiplash for how dumb I was and stupid I was. I was shaking when I was driving the car. The front end was bashed in. I pull up into the driveway. I'm taking kind of the walk of shame, my head down. I go up to the door. I knock on the door. Sure enough, he's the one that answers it. And when he opens up the door, I just say, I'm so sorry. And in the driveway, he looks at the car. He sees me. He puts out his arms like this. He says, come here, son. Puts his arms around me. Said, I don't care about the car. I care about you. I care about you. At my worst, feeling a love so unconditional, so worried about the possession of losing something, that our Father in Heaven actually cares way more about you than He does than the screw-ups you've made or being at your worst. Jesus saw you at your worst, yet He still wanted you. Look at the narrative of Scripture. A murderer named Paul on the road to Damascus, boom, saw why you persecuting me. Love meets Paul, Paul transformed. A woman caught in adultery, thrown at the feet of Jesus, people ready to stone her. Rather than Jesus condemning her, Jesus sets her free and says, where are your convictors? Where are your condemners? I don't see anymore. Yeah, neither do I. Go and be free. Which, by the way, you know how dope Jesus is? Setting a woman free who deserves stoning according to the law. Do you realize in the book of Quran that the same issue is issued? For a woman to be stoned if she's caught in adultery like that, the only grace in the Quran is this, is if you're pregnant, you can go through your pregnancy, give birth to the baby, and the minute you give birth to the baby, you can stone the woman for her sin. The fact that Jesus shows up and forgives her of her sin is mind-blowing to Muslims that grace can exist like that. It's the narrative of scripture, when grace collides with a sinner. Just moments before Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, now you're looking at whose sins he's forgiving. Now he came to demonstrate and model what he came to do and why he came. It's the narrative of scripture. You see, Jesus not only saw you at your worst and still wanted you, but point number two is Jesus came to revive all. He came to revive all. This is so dope. I love this next. By the way, if I'm saying dope and some of you are like, what's dope? Is that marijuana? Is that drugs? <laughs> dope is just a slang word for like, get ready. This is awesome. Like, I love this. This is really good. So when you hear me say dope, it's not drugs, okay? It's just a word that, that people use to describe something cool. So I want to be, I want to be, I want to be conscious of people like, I don't understand why you keep saying that. <laughs> Verse 15. This is so cool. Yeah, that's probably better. It says, verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. By the way, first time Mark ever uses the word disciples. Thanks, bro. First time Mark ever uses the word disciples. Disciples mean learner. 
It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. You know what's so cool? Is in Mark 1, when Jesus looked at his disciples, he said, follow me, and I'm going to teach you what it's like to fish for people. And the very first demonstration and learning lesson the disciples get is in a house full of thugs. It's a house full of nobodies and sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. Jesus came to revive all. He came to revive all. What happens when a person is met at their very worst and encounters grace? They can't help but get everybody on their turf to come to hear about what Jesus has done in them. When a sinner meets Christ and the unconditional love of Christ, they're some of the best evangelists in reaching people and reaching their friends. Because it's real. It's raw. It's not some church lingo. But they don't know how to describe other than my family needs to know about it, my friends need to know about it. And Levi throws a party for Jesus to honor him for what he did for his life. It's this big banquet. The house is crowded. Probably got some Nicki Minaj playing up in the house. Because they're sinners. They, they don't know. They got some music going. And by the way, Jesus, in Eastern culture, they get it. But in Western culture, we don't get it. In Eastern culture, when people would sit down and have a meal together, it meant this. We we're at peace. There's no beef here. Like, there's, no, there's nothing wrong here. We're, we're all good. We're in this together. And by the way, when they would eat a meal, this is, I love this. <laughs> Do you ever want to have fun with a Bible meal with your kids? Just pull out, like, some cushions and lay down on your side like you're laying on the beach because that's how they would eat a meal. Here's all these thugs laying on their sides eating a meal together. Do you realize what is happening right here in this text? A revival is literally breaking out in the middle of Galilee. A revival is breaking out in Galilee. These are the people that can't step foot inside of a church. These are the people that aren't welcome to sit in rows just like you. These are the people that know their screw-ups. They know they've messed up. They know they're not good. And by the way, Judaism and the religion of the Jewish faith was all about keeping the law and attaining to the rules that they put. But these Pharisees came and added additional laws that put burdens on the people. In other words, they took what God intended and made it something it never was meant to be about. And Jesus came to describe a different way, a new way, a way that would attract people that nobody else wanted. Do you understand this? The Pharisees were supposed to be the people that brought mercy to the outcasts. That's what God had intended. But here Jesus is on the scene, eating with a bunch of sinners and hearing about the grace of how a man named Levi was asked to follow him. Do you know the outcome of Levi's story? Levi is the same guy whose name is Matthew. And scripture doesn't tell us why he changed his name to Matthew. One could assume that he changed his name because of his past record. And Matthew means a gift of salvation. And could it be that he identified with a new name named Matthew because he'd received a gift, nothing he earned for, it found him. It was freely given. Do you know Matthew's ending? Matthew follows Jesus, writes the book of Matthew, and Matthew's killed for his faith. 
going from a sinner to a tax collector to now being a martyr for believing in Jesus. That is as real as it gets. Jesus came to revive all, not just Levi, not just other tax collectors. He came to revive all, all sinners, all who are far from God. Jesus came to revive the fatherless. He came to revive the motherless. And by the way, some of us pray for revival. And some of you may have experienced a Brownsville revival, or you may have experienced a Toronto revival, or you may have experienced some sort of awakening in Christ. Revivals were often accompanied maybe to what you're used to, to healings, to supernatural outpourings of the Spirit, lost people being found. You want to know what a revival looked like in Jesus' time? A bunch of Christians hanging with a bunch of sinners to reveal the love of Jesus, that they're worthy, accepted, that they can come to Christ just as they are. That was revival. God came to revive all. He came to revive the prostitute. He came to revive the stripper. He came to revive the drunk. He came to come and get those people to revive all. That's who he came for. It's why he came. It tells me this. It doesn't matter who is in the room today or where you came from or what you've done. Christ came to revive all of you. And so much so that from here on out, just like Levi realized, his life will not be about him, but it's going to be about seeing all revived too. Levi's first instinct was to host a party to honor Jesus, and all the thugs show up. Guys, the gospel was meant to change communities. The gospel was meant to change families. The gospel was meant to change economies. In Acts chapter 20, the silversmith's going out of business. Why? Because nobody ain't buying idols anymore because they're bowing down to Jesus rather than the stupid idols. Gospel was meant to change things. The institution of government or different organizations can help, but the gospel was meant to bring about the lasting change, to revive all. I remember being at Wells Fargo not long ago, and I'm setting up my bank account for our ministry account. And the banker looks at my account, and he says, Mac Ministries. He goes, what's Mac Ministries? I was like, well, man, I said, uh, I just travel around, and I tell people about Jesus because Jesus has changed me. And he goes, well, why would you do that? <laughs> it was like he took softballs and were lofting them up for me just to like, Boom. I said, I want to tell you why. Because I said, I have a really broken, jacked up, messed up past. I come from a really broken, hurting home. I went through a lot as a young boy. I've walked through addictions. I've been offered everything on the planet. But everything in my past never compared to when Jesus met me and his grace found me. And I can't help but tell people about what he's done for me. And when he heard this, he starts to break down and cry. <laughs> We're in a cubicle in the middle of Wells Fargo. He starts crying. He starts looking at me. He goes, dude, this is crazy. I'm like, I know it's crazy. He goes, no, this is crazy. You don't get it. I go, what's going on? He said, five minutes before you walked into the bank, I was talking with my coworkers about how, like, I don't understand how there's a God because there's so much evil in the world. And Cops are shooting people, and people are being arrested for this, and I don't understand the judgment and the things that, like, how can God be real? And here you are, sitting in my cubicle office, telling me about a God that's changed you and wants to change my life. Like, 
How does that happen? Jesus came to revive all. Wherever you go, wherever you walk, you carry the presence of Jesus inside of you. You are different, not because you earned it, because God's grace came and found you, and it's meant to be freely given away to revive all. And this man looks at me. He goes, man, you know why I don't go to church? I said, why don't you go to church? He said, I don't go to church because of being judged. And he said, because I've done too much in my past to ever step into a church. I raised my hand. I said, me too. Me too. I said, do you understand church isn't for good people? Church is for bad people that know they need forgiveness. Do you understand church isn't for people that have it together? Church is for people that recognize they need a savior. Church isn't meant for people who get their stuff together. Church is meant for a God who so loved the world that he came and found them. And we just want to get together and receive his salvation, his grace, and encourage one another and build each other up. You can be a part of that too. You have a past, I have a past too. Jesus came to revive all. You might be sitting there being, okay, cool, like Jesus saw me at my worst and still wanted me. Jesus came to revive all, but cool, now what? Like what's, now what do I do? Like what do I do now? Here's your big so what. We need to learn to stop criticizing and start caring. We got to learn to stop criticizing and start caring. Where do I get this from? In verse 16, it says, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, how low do you have to go to not go to the person, but rather talk about his followers behind his back? It says he, Pharisees asked his disciples in verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your follower, why does your rabbi... Why in the world does he with tax collectors and sinners? By the way, some of you in church long enough may have heard sermons titled Friend of Sinners. And we think, oh, that's cool. Like, he's a friend of sinners. Do you realize the title Friend of Sinners from a Pharisee's mouth is one of the worst rebukes you could ever receive? Do you understand that? And by the way, this is a rhetorical question asked to the disciples, and it's to cut down and hurt the very person they're following. How many times do we do the same thing? How many times do we look at people that are different than us or maybe act differently and talk differently and the first thing out of our mouth is criticism. Oh, did you see that person over there? See how he treated his son? Oh, you see that drunk over there? Yeah, he's always walking home drunk, 1, 2 a.m. Oh, you see that person over there? I can't believe she dresses like that. Man, every time I see a girl dressed to expose, dressed to reveal, I just want to tell her how valuable she is. What comes to your mind when you see someone? What did Jesus see in Levi that you and I, when we look at the Levi's of the world, we criticize. What did Jesus see? Jesus didn't see the worst of the worst. He saw a future child in him because Jesus gave every person the right to become a child of God. So who are we? People with sin still in our life to cast stones and criticize and judge those who aren't in the church. 
God, help us and forgive us for letting criticism be our response and our attitude to those who don't know any better. Help us. Forgive us. The narrative has got to change for the people of God. When was the last time you ate with someone different than you? When was the last time you were at peace with someone who offended you? I got this picture when I was praying about a month and a half ago, and I was praying with Greg and the staff, and I saw this picture, and it was this. Jesus told the disciples that you are called to fish for people. And by the way, don't worry about it because I'm going to show you how to do it. I ain't just going to challenge you. I'm going to show you, model it for you. And their first class demonstration is in a house full of men who didn't belong with Jesus. And there the disciples are watching that and looking at that, taking it all in. And then the Pharisees throw up a curse word calling Jesus a friend of sinners. And Jesus is sitting there, listens to it. And by the way, do you notice the Pharisees weren't inside the house? They were outside the house. How many of you know it's a lot easier to criticize than it is to carry? It's a lot easier to speak death than it is to actually carry someone and care for someone. You know what I love? Jesus hears it. He's hanging with the sinners. Pharisees are outside talking to the disciples. Maybe they went to the bathroom or something. I don't know. Jesus hears the Pharisees. And it's like Jesus is like, hey, you got a problem with me? This is Micah's translation. You got a problem with me? Don't go to my followers. Say it to my face. You got a problem with this picture right here? Well, let me tell you something, Pharisees. And he goes right back at them. Jesus doesn't hold nothing. He says this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. In other words, you don't think you need a savior. You think you're good, but you're not. You think you're righteous, but your righteousness is nothing. You think you need a doctor, the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but I've called to come sinners. In other words, what Jesus was saying, he's saying, these are my people right here. These is who I came for. This is my tribe. These are my people. This is who I'm going to carry. I walk this earth to go and get the lost and bring them back in relationship with my father. They're worthy. You say they are, but they are. You say they're outcasts, but they're not to me. You see him as a drunk, but they're not to me. You see him as a prostitute, but they're not to me. I came to reveal grace to them. I came to come and get them. So you who think you're good enough, y'all will never need me. But if you want to know why I came, I came for these people right here. Do you know how empowering that was for the people in that house to see a rabbi defend them? and see the Pharisees shut down. These religious leaders were so caught up in their own systems, in their own ways of doing things, their power, their prestige, 
that they completely missed out on the Messiah and the scandalous grace and what Jesus came to bring. You and I are no different. If we're not careful, we can be the same exact way. You know what was so refreshing to me? As a youth pastor in a church, been in the church for 19 years of my life, you know what the most refreshing thing was for me? Is when I transitioned out and was no longer a youth pastor and worked for a, a moving company. Well, I know why it was so refreshing? Because I was hearing F words all over the place. Swear words, cuss words, all over the place. Now, I want to use wisdom when I talk next. If you're a 13-year-old, you can hear this next story and be like, Oh, see, Mom, I can go chill with whatever and do it. No, listen. Jesus never was influenced by sinners. Jesus had a mission. His mission was to go and rescue. And it was so refreshing to ride in a moving truck with these guys and having them over to my house for meals, seeing them bringing hard liquor into my home, bringing it in the trunk, coming into my house. It was so refreshing to have people that didn't believe what I believe, to pray over them, to bless them, to welcome them into my home. Because they need God's love. They need his grace. And my wife and I want to do everything we can to welcome people who are opposite of us or different than us to come chill and come eat with us. Because how many of you know the gospel is often more caught than it is taught? And they watch and they see a difference. I want to label maybe some characteristics of what you can find in criticizers versus carriers. Here's some characteristics of those that criticize. One is they care about rules over people. They protect their rules or ideology over noticing a person. They're always thinking of themselves first. They want things their way. They're always pointing out the sin in others and never themselves. They're always noticing everybody else's junk but never theirs. They make themselves feel better by noticing how much worse someone else is in comparison to them. They're afraid of losing power and control. They want to protect themselves and their agenda. It's really easy for them to point out how sinful people are. Here's another one that marks criticizers is they will never share their faith with anybody else. They'll never share their faith with anybody else. They want the best seats in the house to feel noticed and powerful. They always want to be first. They value comfort over faith. They put demands on others but not themselves. They aren't generous and never look for ways to give. Now here's characteristics of a carrier. Characteristics of a carrier is this. They recognize their own brokenness and their need for Jesus. They recognize how sinful they are and how much they need grace and Jesus to save them. They look for ways to be a giver and not a taker. They can't wait to be generous. They walk into a room and say, there you are and not here I am. There are people who pray for others. They are Jesus-centered and others first. They walk in step with the Spirit. They're quick to forgive because of how much they've been forgiven. 
and they do not look at outward appearances of people, but they see every person worthy of the grace of Jesus. Characteristics of a criticizer versus the characteristics of a carrier. You know what I love about this scripture passage in Mark chapter 2? We see a model of what Jesus came to do, and we see a model of what the Pharisees' agenda were. In Mark chapter 2, it says this. It says, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left in the house, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. This is the model that Christ gave us. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Carriers. This is the heart of a carrier, not a criticizer. This is what it looks like to start carrying someone. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man the mat that was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw the faith of a carriers, when Jesus saw the faith not of criticizers but of carriers, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. You want to know what it means to bring revival and be a person of revival? It means to start learning how to be a carrier and not a criticizer. It means start looking to add value everywhere you go rather than looking to tear down everybody you see. It's looking to meet people and extend the grace God's given you so that people might be met with the grace that God met you with. You can either be a carrier or a criticizer, but you cannot be both. I have one question for you, and this is my challenge for you. You can put up the challenge. Jesus found Levi, so who's your Levi? Who are the very people in your life right now that aren't in the room today that would consider themselves an outsider, but God's given you the heart to notice them or notice someone? By the way, every time Jesus was moved in Scripture with compassion, he always matched it with action. He never let it be just a feeling. When was the last time you were moved with an injustice? When was the last time you were moved with something? Don't ever let it be just a feeling. Let it move into action. Let it move you out of your comfort zone to step into faith. When was the last time you were walking into a room and God laid someone on your heart and you went to them and you took care of them, you blessed them, you cared for them? Who are the people you're praying praying for right now in carrying the faith in Christ. There's a man who, the moment he got saved, would have five friends that he prayed for on the regular until all five came to Christ. He would do this every time. When all five came to Christ, boom, he got a new five. He'd start praying then. This man had two friends for 52 years that never came to Christ. He didn't stop praying every day for 52 years for his friends that were lost. This man ends up dying, goes into a casket in the grave. And at the graveside, these two friends on the grave moment end up giving their life to Jesus. A man of prayer, a woman of prayer in this place is a way on how you carry people to know Jesus. There's power in prayer. And it almost gets like sped up when you begin praying. I have seven people where just about every day, God, would they come to know you? God, would they be found by you? God, they would they receive your grace? God expedites the process of lost people being found because it's his heart. And I want to end by saying this. Jesus never walked in the ways of a critic. He always walked in the ways of a carrier. And when Jesus saw the man on the map being brought in, it moved him so much because the very reason why Jesus came was to carry and take the sins of the world on him. 
He knew what it meant to carry our junk. He knew what it meant to be defiled, rejected. He knew what it meant to be lonely, to be spirit gone, to be called a friend of sinners. These same four guys looked a whole lot like Jesus because Jesus' whole purpose was to carry the weight and the sin that you and I bear so that we could be free. That's the gospel. It's what he came to do. It's when grace meets sin, sin's got to bow. It's got to go. And so wherever you are today, I want to lead you to one of two spots. One, I want to lead you to a point where God's heart can begin to begin to break your heart again. Where you begin getting on track with why he came. Can you imagine getting to heaven someday and you're standing before God and he looks at you and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew. Yeah, but Jesus, I went to church every Sunday. Yeah, but Jesus, I, I showed up faithfully. I tithed, I gave, and he looks at you and he says, I never knew you. How can we go our whole entire life not having anybody that we believe for, that we pray for, that we see come to know Christ? Man, I hope when we enter heaven someday, there's a whole shipload of people, a boatload of people that are found by Jesus because we chose to be carriers and not criticizers. God, free us from us. Free us from us. It doesn't take a preacher, a traveling evangelist person to see people come to know Christ. No, it takes fishermen who've never seen anybody come to Christ. It takes a tax collector who's the worst of the worst. It takes ordinary people just choosing to love Jesus and love people. Maybe a practical challenge is this week getting coffee with a coworker. Jesus came to revive all, revive your workplace, revive your basketball team. He came to revive your home. He came to revive all. What if instead of seeing people how we see and we saw them how Jesus saw them and he started carrying them in a way that was Christ-honoring and Christ-loving? The city of Burnsville is going to look different because of a bunch of people at Zoe Church who desires to bring life and not death into the homes and hearts and community that are right here. That's what he's called us to do. I'm going to have the prayer team come on up. You guys can bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm just going to ask a few questions. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel a lot like Levi, not worthy, not enough, feeling lost in your own sin or your own darkness, feeling lost in your own worst moment. And what you need more than anything else is not someone telling you how you messed up, but what you need is a heavenly father who has his arms opened up wide saying, come here, son, come here, daughter. Receive my grace, receive my love. If you're here this morning, I want to give an opportunity for you to respond to his grace and respond to his love, respond to his forgiveness. If that's you, I just want you to put up your hand wherever you are, saying, hey, yeah, I want to come back. Hey, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to receive his forgiveness. Cool. Awesome. Jesus, I thank you for how you saw us at our worst and yet you still chose us. God, how you came to revive all. Lord, I pray this wouldn't be an inspirational, feel-good message. I pray it'd be a heart transformational repentance. God, forgive me. God, help me 
to be on board with who you came for, with why you came. God, help me to love my neighborhood, to love my friends, our coworkers. God, I thank you for your validation and your approval to be giving us the right to become a child of God. We thank you, Jesus.